1: Reflections by Michelle Brown I'm your host Michelle Brown Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines Standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality and creating change Today I'm joined by Imam Dai Abdullah Imam Abdullah was born in Detroit His parents were Baptists At the young age of 15 he came out to them Abdullah converted to Islam at the age of 33 when he was studying in China. Later, he moved to Egypt, Syria, and Jordan to study the religion. As a gay man in America, he witnessed that lesbian, gay, transgender, and bisexual Muslims are not treated in a good way. So he decided to become an imam to provide community support. He's one of the few publicly gay imams in the world. His first act as an Imam, was that he performed funeral rites for a gay Muslim who died because of AIDS. Imam Dayi Abdullah lectures nationally and internationally on progressive Muslim concepts, intrafaith and interfaith networking, and the development of inclusive and progressive revisions of Islamic theological thought and in an Islamic law. He actively promotes understanding and awareness of issues of racial, gender, and sexual equality as understood in the UN Declaration of Human Rights within and beyond Muslim communities. As the former director of LGBTQ outreach for MPV, he produced a 14 part module on LGBTQ Muslim youth, their friends, family, and community. As the executive director of Mecca Institute, which is the Muslim Education Center for Creative Academics. Imam Abdullah works to find an audience in more traditional Islamic circles. Mecca is a Muslim think tank and online Islamic theological school. It teaches an inclusive liberation theology and interpretation of Quran. As LGBTQ rights are becoming mainstream in the United States, Mecca works to find an audience in more traditional Islamic circles. Imam Abdullah believes that every person has equal rights. No one has a right to judge anyone. Imam Abdullah, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? How are you today?
2: I'm doing well, thank you, Michelle, and salam to you and all your members of the audience. And I want to say that that um, introduction gets better and better each time.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm just getting to know more and more about you, you know. Um, You know, last we talked, it was, we talked about, you know, you were traveling, we talked about the Muslim ban, and, you know, on travel, and, you know, in some ways, things just haven't really gotten better. But you know, you stand also in the intersection as an African American man. And we, we see what's happening to so many African American men, you know, where it seems, an African American people, it seems like there's this, I don't know, this this level of vitriol that's, that's just like bubbling up where people feel that they can say and do anything particularly to black people. As you stand in your truth, not only as a a black man, but as a Muslim, how do you see this time and how do you respond to what you're seeing in the news or what you're experiencing?
2: Well, one could take a position, meaning myself, I could take a position of um, Withdraw and feel that I am under attack although that's part of the reality that could be possible it's not necessarily um, improbable either but I believe in one's destiny can be geared in certain ways and part of that is how I approach the situation. When the situation arises, then how do I approach it? And that in many ways sets the pace, sets the tone for what a possible outcome can be. So, and this is um, also because of my training as a lawyer, my experience in interacting with a variety of kinds of people from around the world, and a multitude of different kinds of circumstances where language was a a benefit and where language was a problem. (laughs) So Uh I think that here in America, I utilize those particular uh, experiences to help me navigate through these processes. But I think the real thing is that a lot of our people today have forgotten their history. And the adage always is, if you forget your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I think that uh, what happens is that people are not aware of the things that are just being repeated from slavery until today. We've had systemic issues, but they have also been cyclic, meaning that they come in cycles. And Mm -hmm. it seems that every couple of generations, they forget or don't pay attention to those signals, those signs of things going a certain way. Therefore, they wind up coming up in a new way. You know, like they say, um, you can dress someone up, but you can't can't always take them out. Yep, yep. And so this is the thing that they dress it up in a different way all the time, and therefore it comes at you from a different angle. But if you know some of the, 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 the pillars that are involved in it, then you can recognize it coming and then you can then approach it in such a way where you can either brace yourself for it and do the things that will help you smooth um, it through the process or you can better prepare so that you don't wind up going down that that road so to speak so I think it's uh, for me I find that I'm able to listen very well and before I respond to things, I always do what our parents used to tell us. let, let your tongue roll several times before you respond. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and when they, when we do that, our words come out without a specific tone that people look for, uh, you know, your, 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 your adversary is going to look for certain types of things. So what you do is that by taking the time, you're able to ask questions. You're able to respond in a way that's much more calm in a way like that so then there's no escalation Now, in some instances uh, there, there's no need for escalation and things will happen but when you're in situations escalation can make a significant difference in how people respond to you so what i'm saying is that um, as an individual when you're out there by yourself you have to approach it differently than when you have others with you either similarly situated and or people who are not. And then you're able to approach the situation in a, in a very different way. So if I'm at the airport and they see in my passport that I've been to various countries, uh, then the question is, well, what, what do you do? And I just tell them what I do. And generally, mm-hmm. because it's, it's very straightforward, there's no hesitation, in none of those things, Sometimes it even brings up a question for them as to, well, what does that do? So that kind of thing. So uh-huh. the whole situation has changed because now they're taking interest in what I'm saying and understanding it better because I have been able to verify this kind of thing. Um, so it's those kinds of things that help us better um, move through the things. For example, the, the very similitudes you know, the way in which things sometimes in life appear, you know, makes it appear real or true. We have to be able to see that who is looking, whose eyes is, is viewing this. And so what makes it real to them could be how you use your language, how you use your body language, how do you respond to things. But those kinds of things are part of the process of how people interpret um who you are and what you are though those things don't necessarily have to be true
3: <laughs>
2: uh-huh. so we just have to be very cautious in these times we have to be very cautious because we have uh, messages that are coming from people um you know um a an example when um kanye west made the comment about choice and slavery uh-huh. it was like where did this guy get this from? And then he comes back later saying, well, his mental health, you know, that, well, that's fine. Um, people do have issues, you know, um, mental health isn't one of the issues for us today in our world. That's fine. But also there's just the common sense aspect of things. Is he really educated and does he understand history? Is other question? Mm-hmm. So those are the things that are so important that... Although I, you know, I found it rather humorous for him to do that, and I, I myself said to other people, "I said, well, that that's a, a new step in coonery, you know." <laughs> I know. But, uh-huh. but and so I took the reality of it, but I also recognized that this man does not have a real education. He's not aware of his history, and because of that, he makes statements and and, and takes actions. That shows that he's not clear. He's not fully understanding where he is and what's going on. Mm.
1: Now you know you participate in a lot of panels. I mean, in a lot of my interfaith panels, and often you're the only you're the only Muslim at the table. Yeah, how, often.
3: yeah. Often,
1: you know, how do you, you know? And I talk to to some people who are like so deeply wedded to their Christianity that it's like they they just can't always see that And, and often it's African Americans who are like just like so into. How do you navigate that? And, you know, how do you talk something? I mean, one of the good things is that you have that Baptist background. So sometimes you can, you know, go back, go back and say that, you know, that, but how do you broaden the conversation? and to recognize i mean that it's not one way or the other you're not the enemy but there that there's out there and i also know that many people i know who are muslim they say well you know i just don't say anything how do you open that conversation and also open them to recognize that you know that maybe starting everything out with a certain prayer you're you're by that way excluding part of our community and to be more open and that about
2: faith well part of it is, is setting the parameters for the conversation so that we're all talking um similar we're all understanding a similar language that um you know the american language and many languages are have such a diversity of of terms that can have the same meaning or imply the same thing so once we get our language in order like when I speak, I tell people that when I use the term Allah, I'm also, I may inter- use, you know, God, I may use Lord, those types of things. So I'm talking about the same deity. And in that way, we're connected. Okay, we got it. What about some other things? Well, this is the language I'm using. And that way, that helps break down the barriers because too often it's here, and I use that in the, the acronym, F-E-A-R, um, facts. I mean, sorry, false evidence appearing real
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so by using language, you break down those barriers so that there it, it does fear is not there, and that even if it still remains because there are some people who are just fearful but mm-hmm. and what it does is that it lessens that that the level of fear, and when people become more comfortable, it's you know fear sort of dissipates. Um, to a certain extent so part of it is making certain that people do it but also I find that some people are so wedded to a particular thing they hold on to it in such a way that they, they strangle strangle it in such a way that it doesn't get full breath it doesn't get the ability to expand and contract so that they understand that it's the process of living because you have to live your faith if you don't live your faith then it becomes the practices of, de- of the people who are dead, the ones who brought it forth. And mm-hmm. you can't do historically things from 2,000 years ago. We just don't do things the same way anymore, <laughs> though some of the import uh-huh. of those lessons can be very needed today. Uh-huh. So these are some of the things that helps me when I'm in those situations so that they see that I'm not absent nor am I ignoring their particular positions, but then I'm actually supporting some of them because we are part of the Abrahamic faith. And even the histories before there was God, you know, <laughs> so connection uh-huh. there too. and so, and I'm, what I'm talking about is human nature, those particular aspects of human nature. And it's important that we bring forth those types of things. I find humor helps a lot too. When I say humor, finding those, those things that everybody can connect to, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's very disarming in many ways, but also it's very supportive in others because people say, you know, that lady, that guy, that, that person, um, is all right. They can laugh, they can do this, they can do that. So that means our connections as human beings are much closer. And if we have a difference of opinion, it's not always taken as an attack. Which I find is the biggest problem in many instances. No,
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I know because often, like if you, you know, it's like even my way, or you're attacking me. Said so no, you know, there's that the commonality, like you said, you find a language or something that when you talk about God and they recognize that we're all talking about the same God and doing it. Now, one of the things that we talk about is how LGBTQ rights are becoming mainstream in the in the United States. However, there is that also that intersection that you can talk about LGBTQ rights but when you look at uh I mean I was listening to them when they were talking about issues about asylum and where some people are coming here um are seeking asylum you send there's a Muslim ban and so we might be thinking all oh, LGBTQ rights, you know, we're making it but there's a broader community across the world. I mean there are people who are coming who can be victims of domestic abuse and seeking asylum here we're saying no, there are people who can be Muslim coming from a Christian country and not going back there. How do you then sort of go from like where everything is like sort of mainstream, but then to sort of say, okay, well, we have to broaden this language much like how you did. We you know when you find a commonality of talking about God, how do you then say, you know, we're all in this together. And if you look at something like a Muslim ban, how this affects our LGBT community, we can't just be happy that we can get married.
2: Yes. Well, part of that is Americans. And this has been probably for the last four or five decades, Americans have not had the need to consider other circumstances because people um, even probably up to the last couple of years, people have always held America, quote unquote, in in awe. A W, you know. And so what it is is that uh, Americans have grown accustomed to not having to face the fact that they're one of many countries in the world. Um when we look at certain statistics such as how many foreign languages Americans know, most Americans don't know a foreign language unless they, they came from an immigrant family within the last mm-hmm. two generations. Mm-hmm. Therefore, um, they have an expectation that when they go to foreign lands, everybody should speak English. Well, really, why? <laughs>
3: hmm
2: um, so the same thing is that we don't have the need to think about these things so much because of the the atmosphere and many of the people who have been in the LGBT rights movement over the last five decades, um, part of it is that they've not had a need to deal with these particular issues. Why do I say that? Because when you look at the advertisement over the last five decades in the LGBT community, when people of color are represented, it's always with some white person. You're always Uh with someone who's like you. And therefore, Uh their whole attitude is that unless you look, you know, want to be with us, what's the need? And this is why certain things such as um, us helping us came when the HIV situation happened in DC and develop their own system of dealing with the, the virus. You know, when other types of information, why do we develop, uh, you know, the black pride, across the country all of those things mm-hmm. came from a lack of of understanding that needed to be there and that doesn't mean that all the people don't understand it's just as quite often they don't do anything to help bring about change oh I got good friends but that doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. enough for me to make change in the community that I come from so those are some of the issues that are part of it. But I have to say that some of the things that in my particular history, so people who are LGBTQ look at the things, they say, well, your history is rather interesting. I say, yes. i you know, I remember when I was working for, um, Harvey milk in San Francisco, you know, campaigning for him in the black community there. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things, Washington DC, when, went, uh, Marion Barry, working on uh, various aspects of developing the black gay community in Washington, D.C. over the decades. All of those things were processes that people had to come together, look for the best decisions that we could make that would move things forward rather than expressing anger all the time. Yes, sometimes anger is important to let people know that you're not putting putting up with this BS, but it doesn't mean that you need to let that overwhelm the circumstances, because the goal is to move ahead. So you have to work in that in that process. So through that, you develop liaisons with other people. They see that you're a level-headed kind of person. They can, you know, so you wind up building coalitions because you've taken the approach that we need to find a way to make it better. Mm-hmm. not known as that angry black man all the time you know? mm-hmm. and it helps because it's it's not that I have to do it in order to have truth put out but it helps them understand that I'm looking for better goals where all of us can benefit and then they see well let's see how we can do that and I've seen people change over the years where they're, you know, at first they were skeptical, but a couple of years later, working together on some different issues, they become very supportive of things and even bring up so did you know so-and-so and so and so was was doing something? No, I didn't know about that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they become allies in such a way because they respect you as a person and know that you're not, that their words are not gonna be taken out of context. So we build a better community that way. And you know, Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody says some things they don't, that they wish they hadn't said, maybe, or, or thoughtlessly said, but mm-hmm. um Grand Mary Pugh, a lady who was very important in my life as a young person, um, she was a metaphysician and she had studied under Ernest Holmes in, in California back at the turn, you know, a hundred years ago, and she taught me one thing. She said that when you make a mistake, be the first to apologize, and that helps you know, smooth out the process, because mm-hmm. we all make mistakes. Um, so those are part of the things, too. Plus, I think um, growing up at home, my parents were very much about you have to have a sense of humor about life, because some things happen to you that you don't plan for, but you got to not let it overwhelm you to where it destroys you getting to the purpose you have. I'll tell you a little quick story uh, that, Go ahead. that taught me. Go My mom um, was going to a Mother's Day event at the church one year, and I must have been about eight years old, something like that. And she had on this beautiful cream color. You know, so it was Mother's Day, you know, so she had Uh uh her her blouse and everything and and a little jacket. And and my mother was a church lady hat, church church hat lady, okay. Uh So she was, you know, sitting, she went out the door, and about four hours later she came back. She had to take the bus to the church, which wasn't too far from where we lived. And when she came back, she had all these great spots on her, you know, jacket and her skirt, front of her skirt. And I said, what happened to you? She said, baby, sometimes things happen to you that you don't expect. She said, when I went out the door, I was okay. Everything was in order. But so when I, you know, on the way to the, to the um, church, she got on the bus. And then, you know, how in summertime, you have, like, a little flash rain, You know, Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: so when she got off the bus, she was waiting across the street, and the car came by and splashed her in the puddle of dirty water.
1: Oh.
2: Oh, now she said that she could have um, gotten angry and and stormed back home, but Mm -hmm. she said it wasn't too bad. You know, a couple of spots, you know, five or six spots, and they weren't too bad. So she said she went on to the church, went in the bathroom, grabbed some paper towels, dipped off all the dirt and stuff and went on in for the the Mother's Day event. Mm -hmm. Now, she she saw some friends she hadn't seen in years, and so she had a good time. So when she said she came back, she said that she had the greatest time and that she just had to deal with the issue. Now, she had been so upset and that she had to be so perfect and all of that, she would have missed an opportunity to see old friends and enjoy the program. Mm-hmm. Believe that, right. that sometimes you just have to deal with what you got, the, the cards you dealt, and work with it. And sometimes, mm-hmm. in the end, you have beautiful things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to be able to laugh at yourself, laugh at other people, not vindictively, but laugh at the little things that happen. You know, how many times have you walked, you know, going through a door and ripped off, ripped your your coat pocket? Mm-hmm. You know. How many times mm-hmm. did you come out of the bathroom and there's toilet paper paper stuck to you? <laughs> you
3: know? uh-huh. 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 <laughs> and mm-hmm.
2: the yes. I that when I see those things happen, I say to people very quickly, I walk the them, and say, your zipper's down, you know, you got your mm-hmm. toilet paper caught here, you know, your skirt is caught in your pantyhose, you know? Uh-huh. Been there. And people are so thankful. mm mm-hmm. So you just have to learn how to swing with it and keep on walking because you have to maintain that. Once you give people their dignity and keep maintain their dignity, they can almost deal with almost anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you know you brought up something that that you know. In fact, once I was showing somebody a picture and they're going like, "Oh, he takes on a lot," you know. But you know, like you were saying, usually. When people think gay, they're going to think a white person, and we're here. So we have that part of wanting to be not only visible within the LGBTQ community, then to also say within our black community, okay, just because we got the gay card doesn't mean we've given up our black card. Okay, so often when you talk to black gay people and, you know, it's just like too much. You know, like if you say to them, you want to talk about, what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Africa or in the Caribbean and to do like that. And they're, and they're like, you know, we're part of that. You know, you'll say, those are, those are our people, all of this consension. Sometimes people go like, that's just too much. You know, I'm just trying to be happy and be free and be gay right here on my block. But you navigate all of that. <laughs> you navigate all of that. And, you know, although I understand how to try to take on all of it can be overwhelming for people, we also have to be aware of all of this because it does affect that. How yeah. do you see as you walk through life, you know, and you're navigating this, do you ever have someone, I mean, or, or how do you express that to people to say, you know, you don't have to do it like I do it, but you need to be aware that you're more than just, you know, black person from the East side, you know, or, you know, you're, you're part of this, this bigger things and what's happening to our brothers and sisters who are African of on the African diaspora and who are maybe being persecuted and killed in Africa. And some of the money that's coming from is coming from policies that are happening right here. That is black people. We need to be aware of and, getting those people out of office or standing up and saying that, that we have to be aware.
2: Well, I, I agree with you. That's a very important part. But I also um, make certain that I understand where people are coming from. My um, instructor, Dr. Tahajab Jabalewani, who died two years ago, he was a great mentor in terms of my understanding of Islam in a much broader sense than what's being taught today and he used to say you have to teach people from where they're at if they have little knowledge teach them from a simpler process if they have greater knowledge then you can explain things in the in a higher level so i always take that as the as a starting point i try to get an, an idea as to where the person is from if they don't do they have less than a high school education or high school education, I change my vocabulary, my, you know, unabridged dictionary vocabulary to one, a much more simplistic tone, but I make short sentences with easy words, sometimes to get them to engage them to ask questions. That's how I do that. So it helps me navigate and get people to see the import of some of the things that they may not really consider necessarily from just the, uh, you know, uh, John and Jane to public perspective. Mm-hmm. So if I'm talking about African LGB issues, I talk about uh, the way in which we as part of the diaspora still have a motherland, and that it's important to get our DNA thing done, you know, so you know where you came from. Mm-hmm. and then know that they also may be having some issues dealing with LGBTQ issues. So that's a way to get them connected to the issue in a way that 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 pushes their curiosity, that, that, that piques their interest that they may not have had before. I'll tell you, what, when I was in such and such place, I ran into some wonderful people. And you know, some of them look just like you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I said, they speak a different language, but you know, when I met their parents, they were just like being at home. Mm -hmm. So I bring that, that familial community, you know, connection to them that though you you may be several thousand miles different in where you live, but some of your realities are still the same. And -hmm. I think that helps people become more involved than they were before. And I don't expect that they'll be, you know, fundraising and stuff like that next week. But mm-hmm. they'll mm-hmm. talk about things in a different way. They'll look at things in a different way. And when they meet someone from um, from Africa, they'll be able to better say, you know, I learned some stuff about what's going on in, in you know, um, Nigeria, what's going on in Senegal, what's going on in South Africa and it gives them a point of reference to African persons and also oh, here's a, a person like me who you know although they're American they have some interest in my in my homeland you know mm-hmm. and so it helps bridge that gap because once we have those things that connect us it's hard to break them you know what i'm saying mhm um, mm-hmm. have and you done a like,
1: dna test i'm sorry have you done a dna test
2: um one of my brothers did. And uh-huh. so we have, um, well, we have some, um, on my father's side, African and black. And then on my mother's side is um, African and Native American. So
3: uh-huh.
2: um, we do know some history in terms of those people, you know, names or something like that. Because we have history. We can go back to, like, on my mother's side to around 1820, wow. somewhere around there. And on my father's side, um, back to the 1840s. Mm-hmm. So we have some of that, but in the blood thing, I'm not, I would I don't know, I won't say exactly which I'll have to get the information from my brother and find out exactly where we have, but I know we got some West African stuff in us. So, mm-hmm. um, but I just think you it's know, important that we, we do that.
1: You know, I thought that, you know, cause I've, I've heard it, I haven't done it. Okay. But you know, it's sort of like, but the way that you explained it, and you know, and how it can help you get that connection and make that interest, and, and like, okay, well, this is there's somebody like there who's like me. I mean, that's the first time I've heard that. And that, I mean, all of a sudden, like something clicked with me. You know, like to know something. You know, yeah, I read the paper and I look at stuff and I and I follow an awful lot of stuff. But to have it that you know zero in on right there, and that's something that I can do. That is just like amazing i mean all of a sudden i never heard anybody explain it to me that made that kind of sense
2: well i have to tell you i learned that when i was living in china actually i was in taiwan back in the middle 80s and it was there that a number of i was working with a group of blacks we had the group called blacks in asia at the time and these were people from across the united states canada britain and uh, who were living in in Asia, and so we would have these monthly meetings um, that we would go on. So in Taiwan, we were uh, doing some fundraising to help some of the um, the children from the Vietnam War who were you know foreign, um, who had foreign fathers from the Vietnam War who were left in Taiwan, and then we would go to these meetings once a month, and it was wonderful because you run across kids who looked like their daddy spit them out on the streets of New Jersey, but they Mm. had no idea what it was like to be black in America, and it was like to be black in China, which wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily happy, you know, result as well. But it was the type of thing, and we were able to connect with them in such a way. And and also there were some um, white and Asian children as well. So, you know, they were all part of the group. And it was just a wonderful uh, process that we were able to, connect with people that way and i learned part of that lesson that i just talked about through that that experience
3: hmm.
2: you, know, we also seen, you know most of us spoke chinese so we our ability to communicate with these kids was enhanced and mm-hmm. we were able to show them and you know like at one of the boys i told him i said you know you look like one of my nephews <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and that that endeared us you know Mm-hmm. Oh, it was one of the things so, uh, during the time. So I'm saying that this is a, a way in which we can – people love when other people can recognize them and connect to them on a spiritual and an emotional level.
3: Mm-hmm. And when we
2: do that, the education process becomes easier. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a good price for us to take a break. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about Mecca. And – um We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, uh, okay. (laughs) My guest is the Imam Daeed Abdullah. We'll be right back.
0: This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
1: Here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And I wanted to talk to you. I mean, when last we talked, you know, Mecca was coming together. Um, Can you give us like a background? What is Mecca and why you started it and what is its importance?
2: Okay. Well, what I'll do (laughs) is I'll give you the quick elevator speech, okay? (laughs) Okay. Mecca Institute is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to expand progressive Islamic theology through education and research. By focusing our scholarly work on women, LGBT, and the youth, we are creating an alternative Islamic perspective that supports inclusive Muslims and communities that have been inundated with extremism and discontent what we're doing is we're changing the thinking, making it okay for people to think outside the box of what's been presented from the more traditionalist perspective. Mm -hmm. So, um, what that means in the long run is that we're able to, and our professors, our goals are to present the information from the Quran in a very clear, concise, process or manner what that means is that we are removing a lot of the mythology that's associated with the teaching of the faith and that's an important goal because people quite often get lost in the minutia the myth quote-unquote and lose the meaning of the parable of the story and therefore when people are much clearer about what's going on, then they better understand their circumstances through those very clear tenets that they're trying to achieve. So, um, what that means I've given example, I'm working on mm-hmm. a, um, a lecture I'm doing in St. Petersburg, um, that part of June and I was doing uh, historical research on the Ansar, the Ansar, are the people who were the helpers, when the Prophet Muhammad left Medina, I'm sorry, uh, Mecca, and moved to Yathrib, which is now called Medina today. They had developed a treaty with the Jews, the Christians, and the pagans there for the Prophet to come and become, sort of basically become their arbiter and leader for that city-state. So the people who assisted them, because the Muslims came basically without anything I mean, they had to leave everything in Mecca, so they were already poor. They didn't have any, you know, savings or anything of this nature. So when they got there, the helpers, those people brought them into their homes and cared for them, gave them jobs, you know, all these different Mm -hmm. things. And so when I was reading this document, which is about 50 pages, I had to dig through the storyline. It was recorded by so-and-so-and-so that when the prophet did such and such and such, and these particular people did so-and-so-and-so-and-so, they came to an agreement that they would help each other. (laughs) (laughs) I removed all that stuff and that the people of of Yardwitz, when the prophet, when they invited the prophet to be there, they made the pledge that they would help each other, both in, in acts and deeds, so that they would help care for them in their physical self and also care for them in the spiritual sense being good neighbors, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have to go through a lot of times have to read through these things to come up with the real hardcore stuff that makes it important in your faith um, style or, or, or faith method. So Mecca um, Institute does that in terms of looking at the Quran looking at the historical aspect of the Quran looking at Islamic history looking at the philosophy of Quran so um, basically we just completed our first year we opened in August of 2017 uh, with several students we have four students um, we finished the first year with two students who are continuing on to their second year beginning in uh, late August again um, the thing about mecca is that what was surprising is that we had two people who were um, not as educated as some of the other two people. The two there's one um, I should say there are two people, both of them PhDs. One is a, was a, was a um, or is a therapist for um, the, the U.S. Air Force, and the Pentagon, and another one is a professor of education at Georgia University, and then the other two. One of them didn't even have a bachelor's degree, but had worked as an activist for the last twenty years in San Francisco, and another one who was doing some had done some undergraduate was interested in studying. so it, it to see the the breadth of people who had an interest in learning said to me and to the professors that this is something that people have an interest in, and now our job is to advertise more so that people can know that we're there. Now mm-hmm. in this first year, um, two things happened. One is that um, we knew what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, got it set up and everything. Um, we were doing the fundraising thing, things of this nature. And we were able to raise um, a matching funds with an institution. Um, you know, um, a philanthropic organization. And then they then they rejected our, you know, they said they had promised to do something, and they didn't. But our matching funds allowed us to get the, get through the first year.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what we were able to do with it is that, um, let me just hold on to your hat now. <laughs> In December, we began our um, outreach program. I think it was December 11th. And it went all the way through, I think, the 21st of March. In that four-month period, we reached over a million people globally. Wow. Mm-hmm. We retained almost 11%, um, like 106, almost 107,000 people were retained in terms of our Facebook outreach. Mm-hmm. And now... um. Our next goal, was we're doing that fundraising for the, to fill, fill out this rest of this year, is that our goal is to do more advertising so people know about the school and see what happens. And we got two letters from Facebook saying they've never seen an organization grow so rapidly. And so okay. Meth Institute is the largest um, progressive Muslim organization in the world.
1: Wow. Congratulations. That is awesome. And, you know, and I think that yeah, you like you break down if people take the time to look at, it, and I think that that's part of the message too. Not only how you're talking about how you you go down to like what was said, you know, like and often I had talked to someone who's um, he's a pastor of a MCC Church, and and one of the things that he was saying was like you know to take what was the word then you know away a cultural thing like well who wrote it and how did they interpret it based onto it and that it just said like what you were talking about that passage that you read and, and that you're stripping it down to just sort of like teaching, like, this is what was said, forget all of other things. But then even as you look at it, I mean, I was a you know, I went to your website and I'm looking at your board of directors. Here are these two women. I mean, you know, because I mean, who are like so qualified, know this stuff and, you know, and they're right there. Many people would think of, oh, Mecca Institute, you're excluding women because that's one of the things that, you know, people have in their mind that women are at the back of the bus or 10 steps behind. But on your board, you know, your board is balanced. You've got, you know, these two women, two men, and yourself, and their qualifications. So it's not like this is like something brand new where, oh, well, they just decided that they would get into – you know, learning about the Islamic faith, like this one, Teresa Shams, Al-Din Rogers, she's got her master's in Islamic history. And Pamela Taylor has served as a visiting imam. I mean, these are some heavyweight sisters here. So you're not only walking the walk and talking about it being inclusive, you're showing, you know, no, it, this isn't just like you know what you've seen on TV or what your perception might be.
2: Yes, well, I, I just last weekend I was in San Francisco. Well, my 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 pet name for San Francisco, San Francisco, in Oakland.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and um, I, uh, people may not know, but I lived in San Francisco during the the mid to late seventies. Um, so. Um, It's a pet name that I have. And I was Mm -hmm. there. um, And so on on that Friday for Khutbah, or the Friday prayers, I was at the Women's Mosque in Berkeley, California. And it was the second time for me to speak there. I was invited to speak. So I do, you know, I I walk the walk and talk the talk. And then afterwards, there was an organization called uh, Queer Crescent, which is a diversity of POC people who are Muslim in the Oakland Bay area who come together. And they were doing their, their uh, four, four iftars for the month of Ramadan. That was their third week um, personality to speak. And I talked about the uh, intersectionalities of intergenerational development and the importance for the young social justice activists today to be involved with the elders so that they can learn about their history from a personal perspective and not depend on history books to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a well-received process. Uh, One of the questions that's happened, and this will give you an idea of how um, we try to teach people to understand circumstances. Some of the transgender people made a comment, well, the allies aren't doing what they should be doing. And I told him, I says, that may be true from your perspective. I said, but have you considered that they may not know the language? Mm. They may not know the terms. They may not even understand the ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve. So it requires a dialogue, not just to be angry that they're not doing it, but to help re educate them in the process so that they know that when you're not around, and it's not dependent upon you, they can educate those people who make those transphobic statements or do different types of things and that attacks our community. So it's an investment that we have to take in order to make certain people are on the same page, they have the same kind of language. We're not talking past each other. And I think it's really important. It was well-received by mm-hmm. the younger people as well. Now, I had a conversation, this was about a decade ago, with a transgender person, and they were saying, well, you're not talking properly, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, hold on. Let's stop for a second. I understand that you have some disagreement with me. But let's talk a little bit, because I'm not certain if our language is helping each other understand each other well. I And the reason I say that is because in 1972, when Peter was transitioning to Karen, I was part of that process of seeing Peter trans, transform into mm-hmm. Karen and understand the transgender process. So let's talk. And when it came down to that, I was using antiquated language. So I said, well, teach me what are the words that we need to know today, you know. And I learned vocabulary mm-hmm. and have made the point to try to make certain I said today, you know, you look at the it's an alphabet soup now,
1: you know. I know. Yeah.
2: So you
1: just have to stay up on top of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, because I talked to um, a a friend of mine, and she was saying like sometimes she said she gets tired of always having to do a trans 101. But like you said, the language changes. There's someone new who's just trying to find out. So she said as much as she gets tired of doing trans 101, she recognizes the importance of doing it, so that you can move beyond
2: that. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's it's just like people who come from other cultures into America and they don't understand the issue of blacks in America. They don't they don't see the systemic processes that have been put in place over the last four hundred years that have kept blacks under the gun. They and I mm-hmm. use that term literally <laughs> and also mm-hmm. figuratively. Okay. Um so sometimes it's a thing to help them understand. And since I'm I'm somewhat of a history buff, world history buff myself, I'm able to relate to them some of similar things that may have happened to them under colonialism um, for them to relate to. And that helps them better understand. So um, with ignorance is something that, that, that we have to learn to work with so we can be- help people become better educated. And not something that we ridicule people that, you know, that's so stupid. Why don't you know this kind of thing? We don't need that. So um, what I'd like to do is just go back a little bit about Mecca Institute, if mm-hmm. I may. You sure um, can. So and at this point, now that we've completed the first year, we're we're currently in the in the need for people to give us donations so we can make it through this next stage. Mm-hmm. This is a very important stage that we're in now, so that once we make it to this point, you know, meaning that once we make it to 2019, we should have in place other things because while I was away and doing, so you know, recruiting and things of this nature, we put together, we now have about nine different things that we're working with in order to help us in the stage phase two and beyond. For example, we're working on um, an educational um, program for the general Muslim population. And that's a project that we're we're talking to um, the National Association of Muslim Lawyers about. So these are the kinds of things where we feel it's important that not only Muslims will, but this will make access, make it available for people who are non-Muslim to gain information to know more about what are the real tenets, what are some of the issues, how do you look at being Muslim in America, you know, those kinds of things which are very important. So uh-huh. I you know we know that this is a process. And I'm saying to people that small donations consistently can be very helpful to institutions who are in their very, you know, beginning stages of development. We have a lady who for the last 18 months has sent $35 a month into us. And you don't know how many bills that that little money has helped pay. Uh-huh.
3: Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh.
2: Um, but it's consistent. So she gives like $420 a year, but that pays several of those small bills. It makes sure that we keep our P.O. box, you know. Uh-huh. It makes us sure that we can do these other things. So I'm just saying that sometimes people don't understand that those little things help. I remember when the HIV situation was going on, and I would go to the bars in, in uh, D.C., and people would be sitting there say, well, can you give a donation? No, I don't have any money. I said, "Well, no." What I asked you to do is this: I said, "How many drinks are you going to buy tonight? Would you come you. Out to drink? Okay. Mm-hmm. I said, "If you just donate one of those drinks to us, that will help." I said, "If a hundred people do it, do you see how much money? That's five hundred dollars." You know, I said, "So your little bit helps. So please, if you can, would you give?" And they would do some. A lot of them would give. You know, that one drink. And I told uh-huh. them, and that's why I said, do you need something from me that, you know, to, you know, listen to, no, that's okay, that's fine. But it's just those little things that helped these different organizations maintain themselves. Though they got some funding, it was those other things that the funding wouldn't cover that they were able to apply that money to, you know? So uh-huh. these are the things that's really important to get people to see that though they might think they're doing something big, in many ways they're... They're helping the organization eat that elephant of debt.
1: You know, I often I tell people one
2: bite at a time.
1: You know, I often tell people if they just one time that that stuff that you pick up at the grocery store or at Target that you know but it's just there, like oh that's pretty. If if once a month, rather than you know throwing that away, that takes your bill from being like twenty five dollars to seventy five. If you took that and just gave that to an organization, like you said, $35 a month might not seem a lot, but, you know, if 100 people gave $35 a month, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like incremental. Sometimes it's a little simple. You know, if Oprah wants to write a big check, hey, I know you'll take it. But in the meantime, (laughs) the rest of us, I mean, we can can do something, little bits uh, at a time. So, now, it's not like and also a lot of this is online that people are able to access this information correct
2: that's correct and what we do is we have we have a system one of the things that we did during this that four-month period that we developed a payment system so you can go to our website and donate if you Mm -hmm. want to do it by check um pop you know um, what is it pop money or Mm -hmm. credit card or whatever they can do that in any currency around the world.
3: Mm, mm-hmm.
2: So, I mean, mm. we, we pay a little fee. You know, just like the PayPal, we pay a little higher fee in order to have that flexibility. But people now have access that they can donate a dinner or they can donate something, the equivalent of whatever it is that they want, and it's available to them because not, not everybody has PayPal. Not everybody has credit cards, you know, mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: And so making it easier for people to do that. So I just I'm, overall is that I know within myself that the process is unfolding because when you there are certain things that happen in the process that excuse me belch there sorry um, mm-hmm. that the process is unfolding things unexpectedly happen in such a way that you know, this is bigger than just you and your efforts. But that the spirit is involved, you know, God is involved in the process. Mm-hmm. And these are things that have continuously happened. I tell people that when I had the vision to start Mecca Institute, well, visions have been important in my life all the way through. So that's how I got to become Muslim. I had a vision to study Chinese and I go to China to mm-hmm. become Muslim. Okay. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, the same thing happened with this, that it was important that we build this educational system. And I've gone through the process and unexpectedly, very good things happen um, from the, the people that at least expect something to happen. So I know this is part of the process I put, but I have to remember, I have to put the call out to the people.
3: Yeah. I
2: have to say to the people, this is where because if I don't say anything, no one knows if we have a need or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. But one of the beautiful things that I've I've come to understand is that the people who are working with me see the vision, they understand the vision, and they see how they can be part of that vision and help it bring about because they themselves, they have children, you know, that they want to make certain that the world is better for them. And so that, to me, is what the process is. People will work towards things that they can see long-term benefit later on. And so I'm hoping that more people will better understand what it is. Um, so I, the basically overall, the process that we are here, we're moving forward, and we will continue to do the process. As With my TED Talk, video, I don't know if you saw that one online. I did. You did? Well, do you remember mm-hmm. the part when – i say that the people I, ask, I have a question for people that a hundred, 150 years from now, there'll be people on different planets doing different things
3: mm-hmm.
2: and there'll be Muslims there too. And so which, in which direction <laughs> will, will, will there be, do you pray towards the Kaaba? And of course mm-hmm. the people look, you know, lean forward and they were like, so what's the answer? And I told him, he says, I don't know the answer, but those Muslims of that time will. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's so important that people, I try to get people to understand you can't always look to the past for the correct answer for the future. Sometimes you have to take what are the goals that were established in the past and how do we get there in the future. And that means thinking about where we are today. Are we in a Muslim state? No, we're not. We're in a Western country. What are some of the standards that are there? Are they similar to them? No, they're not always similar. So what things are similar what things aren't? So you're able to compare and contrast, and then you start saying, okay, well, we want to change this goal. These are some of the steps we can work forward toward, look forward to and work towards, and that way we will still maintain those goals that we're looking for. What that says to me is I'm teaching people that, just because you're in a different place doesn't mean you you, you don't have scruples. Mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm.
2: Because sometimes everything that you, only thing you have are your are your standards, and mm-hmm. that's how you you know you, you you weather weather the situation by having standards. <laughs> you go from there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, and and like you said, and that's uh, that's part of that understanding and getting to you know because you you see it happening. But there, it's not – it needs to be magnified and, you know, maybe not, you know, like, oh, so-and-so's doing that. But there are little things that you can do that shows that your understanding of, you know, of a different culture, a different religion, but also the similarities that, that it's all doing. And if we all believe in the same thing, you know, whether it's coming through being um, Islamic teachings, um, Buddhist teachings, there's a thread and as we find that thread, then we can find mutual understanding.
2: Yes, so true. Now, I mm-hmm. I don't know if I said this before in the interview, but I've had people ask me. I said, "Well, what was it about Islam that attracted you?" And I told them, "Well, you know, in Christianity, I study the diversity of of different uh, formulations." Of Christianity, I said, mm-hmm. including metaphysics, and I still use metaphysics in my spiritual life today because it helps me, you know, Occam's razor get to the you know, get to the base. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I said, but I also studied Buddhism. I said, it was through Buddhism that I was able to recognize that there's a separation between the spirit and the body, so that I know that I have a spirit, and that that spirit is very important, and it's something that I can get in touch with, at a breaths notice.
3: Mhm.
2: And then they say, Well what was it about Islam? I said it was the way in which the prayer was done. They said, What do you mean? I said, Well in in the Buddhist I mean in the the Muslim form of prayer, there's a way in which when you're doing the sujood, that's basically when you go on your knees and you bow your forehead to the ground. It's a time when you release whatever is your questions on your mind, you turn it over to God. And when you do that, what that leaves a space for you to receive an inspiration. So there are times when I do that, and the response to my question or my issue, the idea has space to develop. Other times, I'm left without anything but just a greater sense of inner peace. Now, how is best to mm-hmm. weather any kind of circumstance at a sense of peace?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that made the difference for me. Mm
3: hmm.
2: So Mm -hmm. that's why I do it the way I do it, because it
3: makes
2: sense to me. So I'm just saying those are the ways in which I had. It was through self-discovery of getting exposed to a number of different things, and then the comfort came and the ability. Because when I was Christian, I was sort of like supplicating all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, God, when is this going to happen? When will that happen? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But in this way, I'm able to just let it go, release Mm -hmm. it. And leave space for the answer before I was crowding it out.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, we're going to take our second break. And um, when we come back, I want to go through some specifics about Mecca so that everybody knows what they need to do. So we'll be right back. We're back here talking with Imam Dai Abdullah about Mecca Institute now first of all I'm gonna break it down with people there's a Mecca Institute Facebook page which like Abdullah is was saying um, that we have uh, over a hundred thousand people who are following it who like this if um, if you're interested and want to know more about we I encourage you to go to this page what do you try to update your page with? What will they find if they go to the Mecca Institute
2: page? Okay. Um, when they Decides go to the, pictures the, of you. <laughs> right. Well, they're at, at this point, there are actually two pages they can go to. Um, the first one, which we is Mecca all one word.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you go there, you will see uh, the information that we have that relates to our different our mission and the different stances, public stances we have on women, LGBT, you, things this nature, and also access to our donation page. If they want information about the school, then they would go to the mecca instituteorg and mm-hmm. look under school the tab for school, and they'll get the information for the school. And it talks about who we are as the organization, things this nature at that website. Now this summer. We're working with the website people, so it will all be blended. So by the fall, it should all be just one website with everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, so that's the thing for that. Go ahead. Mm
1: -hmm. And I, we talked about your TED talk. Um, If someone wants to see that TED talk and don't want to go through YouTube and everything like I did, um, if you go right to the Mecca Institute Facebook page, there is a link to your TED talk. So I mean, because I think that everyone should 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 check that out too. So with this school, if you're interested in going to the school, who's a candidate? What do they need to do? What do they need to know?
2: Okay, well, first, um, if they have an interest, I encourage them to um, take a look at our curriculum. I'll be I'll be putting up a a second year curriculum uh, very shortly but it's for them to take a look at the first-year curriculum. It's a both full and part-time program. And since our students, all of them who have come in, are working adults. They're all Mm -hmm. part-time. But we have both levels that are available. You don't need to know Arabic because it's not required that you understand Arabic, the language, in order to study um, because we have materials that will help you with that um, information. And... You know, really, the only, the only thing you need to have is an interest in wanting to learn and a, and a need or a desire to help other people. Mm-hmm. And what the goal is is that you would wind up at the end of the training, you would become a, a chaplain, a Muslim chaplain, which allows you access to um, not only uh, being able to do this type of work in the community, providing pastoral care, be able to open up a prayer center. That will help bring people in, things of this nature, but it will also, um, their jobs in the government, you know, federal government, state governments, and things of this nature, such as interfaith director, that kind of thing, where people are able to take on roles in that nature as well. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really about people having an interest and wanting to learn more about Islam for their own personal. Uh, beliefs or if they're not Muslim that they can better understand that the way in which Islam is understood is much broader than the limitations that have been put in over the last 30 years which teaches a more traditionalist program a traditionalist interpretation that encourages the women not having their rights that LGBT 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 people are rejected that um, People who are not Arab are not real Muslims. You know, that kind Mm -hmm, of
3: mm thing.
2: Which is important that we get to understand. And um, once they know this, and also, Mecca Institute is teaching from a global perspective, not a nationalist perspective. What does Islam mean to people in Southeast Asia? What does it mean to them in China? What does it mean to them in the United States? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to them Mm -hmm. in Detroit? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. so it's part of that process of getting them to see that mecca institute is a change it's an alternative voice that it is a platform for an alternative voice
1: mm-hmm. now let's say that so, on the sc- on the school page people can un- uh download brochures you know so you can take your time to sit over and read it and there's even now will you be changing i see it has the Institute application for 2017-18, is that the same application that, that will be used going forward, or will you be changing that?
2: No, it will be the same application, but we'll, uh, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm working on the changes for the new school year. Um, okay. Now. so that should mm-hmm. be up within two weeks. By the end of June, we're supposed to – that is scheduled to be up with the changes for the 2018-2019 mm-hmm. uh, application. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm encouraging people to do is that uh, do not let the funding for the school, you know, in terms of the the cost. I am working that if you submit an application and also submit a request for financial aid, then I can shop it around to several different people who helped those students last year
3: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, because they saw people who had an interest in doing this, and then they wound up paying for, you know, offering them a scholarship. So the scholarship would pay for tuition, but the student would have still pay for the, you know, um, student fees uh, each semester. So uh-huh. I'm not trying to get people, you know, inundated with uh, financial aid issues and, and um, you know, federal loans and all of that. I'm trying to avoid that because I don't think people need to be going into this with that kind of um, debt, in terms mm-hmm. of that. So we're trying very hard to do that. And we, we were successful to get, the uh, four people who started, we were successful to get them um, a scholarship for that time. So I'm just saying this is part of the, the way that people see a need, but they also need to see that there are people who really want it
3: mm-hmm.
2: as well. Mm-hmm. So that helps us uh, show uh, people that, um, who are willing to, i um, you know, willing to sacrifice or put something behind the institute in such a way that there are people who are interested in becoming chaplains. Mm-hmm. So I help them. If you help me get, you know, want to do this, I'll try to help you get the funding so that you can achieve your goal.
1: Mhm. So, but it, it helps, like you said, if you have applicants, it's easier to go and say, I've got these people who are interested than to get the funding to say, you know, fund it and they will come. We're saying you've got them, they're here, they're interested, they want to do this, and if you can assist them in reaching this goal, um, we'll gladly accept your donation and contribution. Right. Exactly. Okay, now, you also have a think tank for inclusive Islam. Who's engaged with that? And if someone is out there who thinks that that's what they'd like to do, should they contact you directly?
2: Yes, they should contact me directly
3: um, in terms of that. The... Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: they can contact me at uh, dai at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And just put in the subject head that they're interested in the think tank, and mm-hmm. then we'll have a chance to talk. Um, I'm working with a, a couple of Islamic professors from across the country, as we're developing our research center and the think tank will be involved with the research center
3: mm-hmm.
2: so um, I would like to talk with people and see because we're like I said phase two is developing the think tank portion and with the research mm-hmm. center. so mm-hmm. if they have they have an interest that would be the case we would need people um, because we're, we're not a brick-and-mortar building we don't uh-huh. need volunteers in the same way, but we can utilize people who may have an interest in helping us uh, spread the word about the school in their own way. They may know various lists that they, you know, serves that they belong to and things of this nature. We can always use that kind of help because marketing is so important.
3: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: But, but others, are people who, um, if they have a particular specialty in certain things, um one of the things I'm I'm looking for, not necessarily this year, but we're working developing a listen to people, people who may have certain Islamic arts, like mm. um, oral recitation of the Quran, teaching that kind of thing. Those are the things that could be important to us for future courses. So we're looking at people that they can bring something to the table that will help broaden and make our training more full because not everyone may not want to be a chaplain per se but they can get the training, the basic training, and then go into Islamic arts. Or okay. if they're a writer, then they can take the training, get the history and things and write things about Islam from a historical perspective. So there are ways in which the information, the core information can be utilized in different ways mm-hmm. in our communities. You
1: know, you mentioned do you ever anticipate long term of having a brick and mortar facility?
2: We do. Um, that's something that's probably another three or four years down the road.
1: Okay. And make note to sell <laughs> another conversation with you about that. Well, we're coming to the close, we're getting close to the close. And I want you, if you could one more time, talk about the importance of donations and Give us your elevator pitch for making a donation to Mecca Institute, please.
2: Okay. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> uh, this year we're, we have a goal of reaching $100,000. Well, actually $125,000 is our goal, Teresa, so that we can finish up our, our programming and um, make certain that everything follows through through spring of next year which okay. will take the 2018-2019 year. And with that, that funding, we'll be able to expand our marketing significantly, but also be able to, to um, have as many as uh, 10 students come in on scholarship. And it will also allow us to continue to build our process and making certain that we're getting this information out to the world that Mech Institute exists. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. Um, future years, once we get the think tank going, our goal is that we're we're looking to raise around seven hundred fifty thousand dollars over the next three years, so that we're able to solidify and make that an ongoing process. And we have our um, uh, organizations were willing to to um they told us given this way they said once you're accredited with um and and a um i'm sorry once, once you're affiliated with an accredited institution then we'll be willing to back some of your goals you know programs that we want to do so mm-hmm. we need to get to that point to where we're able to access other funding so we're only looking at that, that 750 will get us solidly found, you know, foundational so that we Mm -hmm. can then move into other areas where uh, organizations, like philanthropic organizations will then fund things and we'll be able to continue to grow because there's a 40% Muslim population that are unmasked, meaning that they don't go to the regular mosque because they don't feel comfortable there.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: we need to be able to let them know that we exist. And through that process, we will bring in more people, um, To become to the school, be involved in the think tank, and help our community grow. Because what we're looking for, ultimately, I'd like to in ten years from now have a hundred inclusive mosques across North America. Wow! So those emails Mm -hmm. of people who come to me that say that I wish, you know, there's a mosque and so on, but that's a three-hour drive, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or that's an overnight journey. And I like for them to be able to say, oh, well, there's a mosque in the next big city, and I can go there. You know a couple of times a month that's what i want to do so that they don't have to feel that they have to go and change themselves and hide who they truly are in some of these mosques that are not willing to accept them for the fullness of who Allah created them to be
1: that's beautiful Well, okay i, I want to thank you for making the time to be with me and and for keeping me up to date on what's happening with mecca that i can share with others um, you know I have you have my full support and you know you've already told me about your next steps so I'll be bugging you to get back on the show each year and and we're going to reach that goal but I want to thank you again for your time
2: today and thank you for giving me the opportunity and Michelle if if possible.
1: want to thank today's guest, Imam Dai Abdullah, one of the few openly gay Imams in the world. As the Executive Director of a Muslim Education Center for Creative Academics Institute, Mecca, Imam Abdullah works to find an audience in more traditional Islamic circles. The Mecca Institute is a non-profit organization that's changing the thinking from the more traditional Islamic perspective. During its initial outreach program, over a million people were reached. To learn more, visit the Mecca Institute Facebook page or its website www.mecca-institute.org. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines Standing Boldly in the Crosshairs of Their Intersectionality and Creating Change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.